why is the virgin birth of Christ a doctrine that's considered essential to Christianity? We're going to talk about that today and a lot more on BibleStudyPodcasts.org, starting now. Hello and God bless you guys. Welcome to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Wednesday, July the 23rd of 2008, and I'm your host for today, Toby Logsdon. And welcome to everybody to our sixth lesson on the essentials. And of course, this is a study that we've been doing for the past about month and a half, and I've gotten a lot of positive feedback from you guys. I am just, I'm blessed to know that you guys are enjoying these lessons as much as you are. So for those of you who are maybe joining us for the first time today, welcome to you as well. We're glad to have you here with us. I hope you guys are having a fantastic week. I have absolutely no news whatsoever regarding the sale of our house. Uh, We haven't had any showings or anything like that. So thank you guys for your emails and for your continued prayers regarding the sale of our house. Uh, Man, I, I can't wait to sell the house, but, you know, I am committed to doing this on God's time frame and not my own. So, anyway, I came across something kind of funny yesterday that I wanted to share with you guys. I came across an advertisement for a 900-year-old biblical scroll. And here's the description for this uh, 900-year-old biblical scroll. It says, a complete Hebrew Torah, original Old Testament scriptures, on a giant sheepskin scroll over 160 feet long and two and a half feet high. The oldest and largest item in our book vault. Dates back to the early 1100s AD. One of a kind with a beautiful handcrafted soft cloth cover offered at $145,900. And when I read this, uh, my only thought was, wow, that has got to be a big sheep, right? 160 feet long and two and a half feet high. That's a big sheep. But (laughs) anyway, just something funny to share with you guys before we get started here. But let's go ahead and get started with a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we just come before you today, and we just humble ourselves and thank you so much for every moment that you give us, Lord. Lord, our prayer today is that we would come to know you more, and that you would draw us closer to you in the process, in order that you would be glorified through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, welcome to our sixth lesson in our series titled The Essentials. And if this is the first lesson that you're listening to, basically, let me just run this down for you. The purpose of this series is to discuss which Christian doctrines or which Christian beliefs are fundamental to our faith and thus can't be compromised on. In other words, what we're talking about here are beliefs that are essential to Christianity. And if we remove any of them, we're left with something that is uh, something other than Christianity. So that's why we say that they are essential to Christianity, and that's why this series is called The Essentials. But uh, this series is also based on the book Conviction Without Compromise, which is written by Dr. Norman Geisler and Dr. Ron Rhodes. And I would strongly encourage you to pick up this book if this is an issue that interests you, because this book actually goes 
goes into much greater detail in explaining all of these doctrines that we've been talking about than we're actually covering here. There's more detail in the book than what we're going to be offering you here. So we simply just, we don't have the time to go into as much deep detail as they do in the book. So if you want to pick up the book, you can actually find it on our recommended reading list on BibleStudyPodcast.org, and you can link to Amazon from our website by going to BibleStudyPodcast.org, and on the right-hand side, you'll see a page called Recommended Reading, and it's number one on our recommended reading list. This book is one of the one of the best books I've ever read, and really this covers just everything that's essential to Christianity and things that are not essential to Christianity. And it, it uh, points those things out as being not uh, essential to Christianity. So anyway, uh, thus far we've covered the oneness of God, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the depravity or the sinful nature of mankind. Today we're going to be talking about the sixth doctrine, which is essential to the Christian faith, and that is the virgin birth of Christ. Now, before we get started, some of you may be wondering why this would be considered a doctrine that is essential to Christianity. Does somebody actually have to believe in the virgin birth of Christ in order to be saved? Well, the answer, in my opinion, taking all scripture into account, is no, they don't. A person does not have to believe that uh, Jesus was born of a virgin in order to be saved. As we discussed in our first lesson, the things that are necessary for a person to be saved include uh, believing in one God, believing that Jesus is God's one and only Son, and they must recognize their need to be saved by God's grace through his Son, and believing that Jesus died and was raised from the grave for our sins. Those are the, the doctrines that are essential for salvation. I honestly believe that Scripture teaches that if a person believes these things and in response puts their faith in what Jesus did for us on Calvary, they will be saved. So if if that's the case, if, if those are the doctrines that are essential to salvation, then why does it matter that Jesus was born of a virgin? Why do we say that it is an essential doctrine of Christianity? Well, what it all boils down to is the fact that this doctrine is essential to the doctrine of the deity of Christ, which we covered a couple weeks ago or a few weeks ago. You know, if we're being consistent with our thinking, and maybe more importantly, if we're being consistent with our method of interpreting Scripture, we do not and we cannot believe that Jesus had two earthly parents. By being conceived supernaturally, miraculously, and born of a virgin, Jesus wasn't born with a sin nature like the rest of us. He faced the temptations to sin that we face, and we talked about that a few weeks ago in the humanity of Christ, but he didn't have the inclination to act on those temptations. Now, let me say that again, because this is actually a crucial point to Christianity and to our study here. Jesus faced the temptations to sin that we face, but he didn't have the inclination to act on those temptations. And that's because he wasn't conceived of by an earthly father. See, if Jesus had been born a sinner like we are, he wouldn't be able to save us. And I think the book uh, Conviction Without Compromise puts it nicely when it says that one drowning person is incapable of saving another drowning person. Because of our sin nature, we're all drowning, metaphorically speaking. Thus, for Jesus to save us, he couldn't have had a sin nature. Essentially, his sinlessness is a result of having been miraculously, supernaturally conceived in the womb of a virgin. Now, 
Let's start off by addressing one question that we should always ask when we're talking about doctrines, and that is whether there is scriptural support for this doctrine. By asking this question and actually you know, coming up with an answer for it, we avoid coming across as dogmatic to unbelievers, which is very, very unattractive to unbelievers. So, you know, we want to have answers for these things. So, yes, there is plenty of scriptural support for the doctrine of the virgin birth of Christ. In fact, starting with the first prophecy in the Bible pertaining to Jesus, we find an insinuation that Jesus would be born of a virgin. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, which is actually the first prophecy of the whole Bible, Adam and Eve have just rebelled against God uh, by eating from the tree of good and evil knowledge, and now, having acquired evil knowledge and knowing how to disobey God would definitely be considered evil knowledge, they're about to be kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So God tells the serpent who tempted them to sin, uh, God tells the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Well, Jesus is her seed in this context. And it's significant to note that God doesn't say his seed in reference to the seed of Adam. He's talking about Eve when he says her seed. Referring to her seed, though, is is really very, very unusual in Scripture, considering that genealogies are normally traced through the father. You know, if we look at the genealogy from Genesis chapter 5, for example, we find that Adam is mentioned first, then Seth, then Enosh, then Canaan, and so on and so forth. But uh, those are all men being named. But God specifically referred to Jesus as being her seed back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. So the implication here is that Jesus would not have an earthly biological father. Instead, he would be born of a virgin. And then as we read on in scripture, let's uh, let's look at Jeremiah 22:30. We read of the curse that gets placed on Jeconiah and his offspring. The verse says, "Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah." Now, none of Jeconiah's descendants, according to this verse, are ever to sit on the throne of David. But then take a look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. Here we find the genealogy of Joseph. That's the one that's in Matthew. In Luke, we find the genealogy of Mary. But here we find the genealogy of Joseph in Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 12, who, of course, was Jesus's legal, but not biological father. And it lists Jeconiah in the lineage. But wait, the Messiah can't have any genealogical connection to Jeconiah because the Messiah is supposed to sit on David's throne. That was the prophecy. Exactly. See, Jesus wasn't a direct descendant of Jeconiah because he didn't have an earthly biological father. But Jesus was directly from the line of David because Mary was from the line of David, which is what we find in Luke chapter 3 verse 31. Therefore, there is an implication here in Jeremiah 22:30 that supports the notion that Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, it's important to note that this verse isn't a prophecy pertaining to Jesus, but when we're looking at forensic evidence, that is when we're looking at the pieces of the puzzle, 
and seeing how they all fit together. This verse definitely supports the notion that Jesus was born of a virgin, particularly in light of the fact that Matthew's letter was written to early Jewish converts to Christianity who would have known that no descendant of Jeconiah was supposed to sit on the throne of David. Why would Matthew have included Jeconiah in the lineage of Jesus on Joseph's side unless he, uh, Matthew, was teaching that Jesus wasn't biologically connected to Joseph. Now, you would also expect God uh, to want to make the identity of the Messiah, Jesus, totally obvious to everyone by giving very specific prophecies about it. And that's exactly what he did in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, where we read, Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Now, if we take this verse as it is, there is no question that Jesus will be born of a virgin, or that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. However, there are some serious objections that get raised when you bring this verse up as supporting the doctrine of the virgin birth. So let's go ahead and talk about that really quick. The main objection that you'll hear when you bring this verse up is that the Hebrew word, which gets translated as virgin in this verse, actually refers to a maiden or a young woman. So the verse shouldn't say virgin according to critics. However, in response, there are several very, very good reasons for us to believe that uh, that the word should have been translated virgin. First of all, when we look at how the Hebrew word is used throughout Scripture, it always refers to a young, unmarried girl. There are no exceptions. It's always a young, unmarried girl. There is a Hebrew word for young girl, but that isn't the word that gets used here, and that's extremely significant extremely significant because a young girl isn't necessarily a young unmarried girl. So it's significant that the word uh, which simply refers to a young girl is not the one used in Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14. Instead, the word always refers to a young unmarried girl. Secondly, it's significant to note that Jewish and Hebrew scholars who lived before Christ interpreted this passage as referring to a virgin and not just a maiden and not just a young woman. See, before the time of Jesus, the Jews had translated the Old Testament scriptures from Hebrew into Greek. And the name of this work is the Septuagint. When we look at how Isaiah 7.14 was translated in the Septuagint, we find that the Greek word for virgin is used. So here there is no room for alternate translation. The Greek language is simply far more precise than the Hebrew language. Now, while we don't take the Septuagint to be inspired, it is extremely significant that the early Jewish community understood this verse to be prophesying that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. Now, third, when we look at the context of this verse, we see that this prophecy is intended to be a sign. It's intended to be something miraculous. In verse 11, we read the Lord telling Ahaz, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. Now, obviously, being born to just a normal young woman or a maiden would not be considered a sign, since it can be said that many people in that day and age, many people, were born to a young woman. I mean, think about it. Think about how comical it would be if God had prophesied that the Messiah would have been born with a woman for his mother. Wow, he really went out on a limb there, right? Uh, you know, I don't think anyone would have been wondering how God was going to pull that one off. No, the virgin birth was an unmistakable sign that would identify the Messiah. Fourth, 
when Matthew, by the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit who inspired the book of Isaiah, when Matthew tells the story of Jesus being born of a virgin, he adds, quote, that it might be fulfilled in chapter 1, verse 22, in order that what might be fulfilled? Well, the prophecy of the Messiah being born by a virgin. So clearly then, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 is a prophecy that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And of course, the New Testament also teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin. In fact, the first account of Jesus being born of a virgin is almost immediately found. It's found in the the first chapter of the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, which we don't really have time to read here, but uh, you know, if you're not familiar with that passage, do go ahead and take the time to read that for yourself. That's Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 uh, through 23. Uh, Dr. Geisler and Dr. Rhodes point out that we find four reasons in this passage to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. First of all, the text says that Mary conceived, quote, before they came together. So there was no uh, there was no intercourse, there was no relation between them that would have caused Jesus to be conceived in her womb before this point. Secondly, Joseph's first reaction when he finds out about all of this is to think that Mary has committed adultery, to think that Mary has been with another man, and so he plans on divorcing her. Third, an angel comes to Joseph in a dream and says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So being conceived by the Holy Spirit indicates that Mary's pregnancy is supernatural. Fourth, and finally, Matthew refers to the prophecy of the Messiah being born of a virgin, which indicates that Mary's pregnancy was indeed supernatural. She wasn't only a virgin when Jesus was conceived in her womb, but she was also a virgin until after Christ was born. These are all points that are implied directly in that passage, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. So we're actually running a little bit short on time here. But, you know, if this is a topic that uh, that you want to explore further, you know, Dr. Geisler and Dr. Rhodes go into a lot more detail about uh, scriptural support for the virgin birth of Christ than we have time for here. So let it suffice to say, though, that the, the New Testament is filled with references to the virgin birth of Christ. But as always, let's go ahead and and close by taking a brief look at some of the groups which deny the clear teaching of Scripture that Jesus was born of a virgin. What we find is that every group which has denied the virgin birth of Christ finds themselves outside of Christianity. First of all, uh, first example, while Muhammad embraced the teachings of Jesus, history teaches us that he was heavily influenced by the teachings and by the writings of a second century group called the Ebionites. Now, the Ebionites taught that God didn't ordain Jesus as the Messiah until Jesus' baptism, and that the purpose of Jesus' ministry was to call all of humanity to obey the law of Moses, rather than to serve as a savior and as a sacrificial lamb for humanity. So since Jesus didn't become the Messiah until his baptism, there was nothing miraculous about his life prior to his baptism. And, you know, if you read the Quran, you'll find references to Jesus, but you'll find a denial that Jesus was born of a virgin. And so therefore, Islam, which has its roots in Judaism and Christianity, clearly denies the virgin birth 
of Christ. And of course, the Jews also rejected the notion that Jesus was born of a virgin. The Jews of Jesus' time recorded in the Jewish Talmud, which was a collection of rabbinic writings, uh, they recorded that Jesus was born of an adulteress. So it's no surprise that most Jews today still deny that Jesus was born of a virgin. Also, you know, if we take a look at the New Age, they believe that Jesus was just an enlightened person. In that sense, then, Jesus is no different from Buddha, from Confucius or uh, Muhammad, the Dalai Lama, and, and so on and so forth. They believe that Jesus had this secret spiritual knowledge like these other religious teachers and, and leaders, but that there was nothing miraculous about his birth. And so therefore, the New Age denies the virgin birth as well. And actually, the Unitarian Universalists believe the same thing. Uh, that is, that at the most, Jesus was just one teacher among many enlightened teachers throughout history. Sadly, one of the most vocal and visual critics of the virgin birth is the academic community today, such as the Jesus Seminar, who denies the virgin birth as well. We find that their philosophy has permeated not only our televisions, but also our movies as well, where we hear things like, uh, well, the myth of the virgin birth was actually borrowed or stolen from Greek mythology, and you know which movies I'm talking about. But, you know, nothing could actually be further from the truth, because in Greek mythology, what we find is that these gods came down to earth to have sex and intercourse with uh, with human women. These women were impregnated through physical contact. But, you know, if you look at that and compare it with the Bible, the narratives of the virgin birth in the Bible are unquestionably non-sexual. God did not come down and have sex with Mary. But to argue that Christianity stole this doctrine from Greek mythology, it actually requires uh, putting the chronology backwards. You see, Greek mythology in the 3rd and 4th centuries had this myth that was similar to the virgin birth of Christ, but there's no indication that this late myth existed prior to to Christ's virgin birth. So therefore, it would be more accurate to say that, if anything, Greek mythology stole or, or tried to steal the doctrine of the virgin birth from Christianity. It wasn't the other way around. Further, it's also worth noting that the one gospel narrative which is recognized by scholars and academics for its historical and archaeological accuracy is the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke is one book which clearly teaches that Jesus was born of a virgin. And similar to that school of thought is the Mormons. The Mormons believe that God, who has a physical body and is not spirit, came down and had sex with Mary. He actually had physical intercourse with Mary. And they actually get around the issue of Mary's virginity by saying that a woman stops being a virgin only when she has sex with a mortal man. But having sex with God is not having sex with a mortal man. Therefore, she was still a virgin. And yeah, that, that's just playing a game of semantics, and that doesn't work. The Mormons clearly deny the virgin birth of Christ in that sense. So we assert that because Jesus was born of a virgin, his identity as the Messiah was made abundantly clear to everybody, and Jesus didn't have a sin nature. He didn't have the inclination to fall to the temptation that he was confronted with. As such, only Jesus is able and qualified to save us. And for that reason, the virgin birth of Christ is a doctrine that is essential to Christianity, and this is a doctrine that we will not compromise on. So, anyway, I hope this clears it up for you guys and makes it abundantly clear 
that the doctrine of the virgin birth is essential to Christianity. So if you guys have any questions, as always, you can email me at cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. And also, you know, you can contact me on Facebook or MySpace using that email address, you know, whichever works better for you. But uh, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for listening today. I'll see you next time on BibleStudyPodcast.org. Keep growing closer to Jesus. This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org, a paraministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a nonprofit listener supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcast.org org and click on support on the right hand side you can make a tax deductible donation from there by doing so you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who just like yourself desire to find answers and meaning in scripture we thank you for listening today and we pray that the lord blesses you and draws you closer to him keep growing closer to jesus